Welcome down to my nine-foot homemade oak bar. Pour yourself a cold one. You are listening to Bucks in the Basement. My name's Chris, and Craig here is the biggest Pirates fan you'll ever meet. Let's talk Pirates baseball now. Welcome to Bucks in the Basement. Now I see the changes in this town. They change, they say one thing, but then the next day. I've gone through some different emotions here, and and some of them are hard for me to to even explain. All about Andrew McCutcheon. I mean, like you, you this signing happened, and you became a glass case of emotion. Is what you're telling me? Yeah, and the beginning emotion was is this is awesome. Kutch is back. Like this is like great. I tell my kids. I'm like I tell my daughter who like wore her her Andrew McCutcheon jersey that's been passed down from like my oldest nephew that now my you know six-year-old wears and she's like you're kidding me yes he's back when are we going to a game he's pirates lore like a generation of pirate like the little ones the little ones have heard their daddies talk about Andrew McCutcheon and now Andrew McCutcheon is back that was kind of how you you were in your house yeah and the kids like my daughter remembers seeing him play my son doesn't but He's seen him play when he comes back and hears me tell about, you know, the 2013, like, wildcard game, the, the playoffs, like, what Andrew McCutcheon meant to Pittsburgh. And so I had this immediate, like, man, this is awesome. But then for some reason, I'm just like, okay, Chris and I said at one point in time that we take, we take our fan hat off and you take and you don't, you don't cheer as much for the name on the back of the jersey, even though it's Kutch. And you got to think about the name on the front of the jersey, the Pittsburgh Pirates. And I started to think, what does this move actually do for the 2023 Pittsburgh Pirates? And I'm not really sure that a player who was 1.1 war, B war, and 0.3 F war, who is starting to come on the downside of his career who did get a decent amount of at-bats in Milwaukee last year, over 500 bats, because he was playing like 60% of the time at DH, a little bit in the outfield. Is he going to get that many at-bats here? And the other part is if he's not performing, should he get that many at-bats? That That's just kind of where my mind is starting to go, is like, how is this going to play out? This episode of Bucks in the Basement brought to you proudly by Yins. Go to shopyins.com and uh, wear that that Yins apparel. 20% off for new customers. I'm seeing they keep putting out more and more products. It's not just shirts and hats now. The big yellow Y. It's one brand for three dynasties. Shopyins.com. I think you've got yourself wrapped up in something that you don't need to be wrapped up in. As always, Chris. Because here's the thing. I think you realize that you were too excited, right? And so the problem is you swung the pendulum back a little bit too much. This isn't a negative signing. It doesn't hurt the Pirates, and it has the ability to give a benefit. Is he going to go out and be the Andrew McCutcheon that he was in his 20s? No, he's not going to go out and be that. Is is he a replacement-level outfielder 
that brings veteran leadership to your team? Yes. Is he a guy who the Pittsburgh Pirates know intimately, where there are people within the organization that know his personality, know how he deals with other players, know what he's like in the locker room, and probably had input on this? Yes. And they must have had a lot of positive things to say about him for him to come walking back in the door, or otherwise he wouldn't be back here. Because he's not here to win a title for the city of Pittsburgh. He's here while these guys are developing, and he needs to be available to be out there, play a role, and start every day at a replacement level to force one of these young guys to take his job. And while he's forcing them to take his job, he is on the bench teaching young guys, prospects coming up, how to survive in Major League Baseball in the long term. That's what the signing is to me. That's why I see the positives in the signing. Remember a couple years ago when the whole rebuild was right at the beginning, when they were trying to to deny that it even was happening, okay? And... And you had Billy Hamilton come walking in the door, right? Didn't he? Wasn't he here for like a spring training or something like that? Gerard Dyson. Uh, that's okay. Whichever one it was, it was one of those players, one of those guys that kind of floats around baseball, right? And he comes walking in the door. And I said, measuring stick. Like he's there unless somebody takes it from him. He's, he's out there playing until somebody can say, nope, uh, you should take me instead. Y- you need to have certain measuring sticks out there when you're going through a build, this is a real pro. This is a guy even better than that. This is a guy that you know. This is a guy who's still capable of hitting 15 home runs or so this year. I wouldn't put it past him be able to do that. I mean, he's going to hit about 230, but he's going to have an OPS that's going to be right around league average. And he's a vet that brings that presence. So I like the deal if you view it in that lens. If you are saying Kutch is coming back to hit 35 home runs, you're nuts. If you think Kutch is coming back to hit 290, you're nuts. And if you think that he's going to be blocking a player, I think you're also nuts. Because when they're good enough, he'll slide from one of those starting positions and be the fourth outfielder. But he's good. He's here in a place where he's comfortable and brings a value to your team because of his experience. And I don't think he's going to hurt you out on the field. The point that I kind of come to, Chris, and it's, it's based on, I mean, as the story has developed. There's been more information that's come out. You know, Jason Mackey did a a very good piece in the PG where he wrote about how this all started. And this was like right after the new year, Andrew McCutcheon texts Bob Nutting. Bob Nutting goes across the hall to Charrington and said, you know what? I, I have a good relationship with Kutch. I still do because McCutcheon still does a lot of his charity work. In Pittsburgh, a lot of times in conjunction with Pittsburgh, you know, with the Pirates charities, why don't you, you know, sit down with him? They went to a coffee shop in Warrendale and just try to see where this is going to go, what Kutch wants. And, you know, it comes out later that Kutch had a a bigger offer from the Mets. He had about the same offer uh, from the uh, Minnesota Twins. And Charrington basically says this is going to be a depth outfield DH role for you it's kind of like are you okay with that and and you know Kutch kind of had to be okay with that we don't know what the role would have been with with the the Mets and it's no surprise that their offer was more money because they're just basically tossing money out to you know whoever the twins don't know really what the role was but I mean Kutch still lives in the area he's got young children he's got a wife now he can be at home so it's a pretty good move for him as well like I said I just kind of look and 
I looked at the players and, and the plan that Sherrington set out at with at the beginning of this offseason. And Sherrington, for one thing, people are like, oh, the Pirates aren't transparent with what they're going to do. Well, number one, I think Sherrington kind of has been this offseason. Sherrington said, we need to solve the first base position. G-Man Choi, Carlos Santana, and we'll get to the G-Man Choi arbitration thing here in a couple minutes. He said, I want two starters. He got Rich Hill and Vince Velasquez. Even if you don't think that Vince Velasquez is a starter, he's going to probably be given that shot. So he went out and got what he saw as two starters, one definite, one potential. Said he was going to go out and get, you know, somebody in the bullpen. Harleen Garcia, then you pick up another one, and Jose Hernandez in the Rule 5. So that he's done that. Then he says, you know, we're going to get somebody to catch. Austin Hedges may not be the one that you want. And then he says, you know what? We might look for some outfield depth. Trade for Connor Joe. Gives you outfield depth. You know, Connor Joe's Connor Joe. It's not, you know, not Andrew McCutcheon, but it's Connor Joe. He was .9. We talked about this last week, Chris. Great in, <laughs> in Colorado. Not great, you know, everywhere else. But then he said he wanted to get another position player. And this position player wasn't his idea. Andrew McCutcheon wasn't his idea. I still go back to, I, I would still like, even with the Andrew McCutcheon stuff, which we could still talk about, Chris, I'm surprised that we've gone to the direction where we have, as of right now, as of the recording, 10 outfielders on the 40-man. 10. It's a lot. And the middle infield depth which we had last year has kind of gone away because you've, you know, let Hoy Park go. You you know, Diego Castillo, gone. Right now, and we've talked about this before, is that's why we thought we they're going to keep Kevin Newman because it's like who actually backs up O'Neill Cruz if O'Neill Cruz doesn't play shortstop well? If O'Neill Cruz, more than likely it would be if O'Neill Cruz unfortunately got hurt. I think they're going to give him a pretty long rope at, at shortstop this year. But now you have... 10 outfielders. You have two right-handed outfield bats in Andrew McCutcheon and, you know, Connor Joe. You have a few right-handed, you know, DH options in Miguel Anjuar, and everybody forgets that, uh, for some reason, that Carlos Santana is a switch hitter and actually hits pretty well from the right side. And so, like, it, it feels like that you're kind of creating a little bit of a log jam where it doesn't need to be created. And the biggest thing I took from Mackey's article was he said that it was more likely that Andrew McCutcheon would return in 2024 than it would be for him to be traded at the deadline. So that's my other piece here is that if you're moving people out of the way and Andrew McCutcheon could be a guy that could be moved out of the way, are you just like not going to play him? Are you going to not let him get to his, you know, 2000th hit, his whatever home, his 300th home run? Are are you, or are you just going to put him out there to see if that happens, even if he's playing bad? That's the part that I am really, I mean, I know I'm overthinking this, Chris. I know that it's pretty much just like, okay, let's see what happens first. But my mind is going to, you also have, you know, Matt Gorski, who was your minor league player of the year, who, when healthy, is a right-handed bat, is going to be in the outfield in 
uh, Indianapolis and has the potential to hit 25 to 30 bombs once he becomes a major. That's like his his ceiling as a player. Like, are you going to have Connor Joe and Andrew McCutcheon out there? Or are you going to drop Connor Joe and and just have Andrew, like, it, is this like a, a farewell tour, even if it's, I don't know, it turns into like the Black Parade. I don't know. Okay, so here's the thing. I'm not concerned with any kind of a logjam because at some point, the young guys have to know that they have to play well enough to be on the team. One of the biggest problems the Pirates had last year was a lot of young guys that came up and everybody's like, oh, look at this, another young guy. He's going to come in right away and kill it for him, right? And they they didn't. There were an awful lot of struggles. There were an awful lot of struggles with a lot of those young outfielders. And this may be the wake-up call of, hey, young man, you are not guaranteed a chance. Get to spring training and compete. You're not automatically on because you're our only option. On the other hand, though, I get your logjam worries because when I look at AAA right now, just the depth chart, there's too many outfielders that are prospects that I know you love and there's only three positions. There's only there's only right, center, and, and left, unless they've added a another outfield position in, in AAA. So the, the, the depth chart out there is kind of crazy. There could be somebody who played AAA last year that's going back to AA. I, I get it. It's a valid concern. I understand it. But I also sit there and say, you had too many guys that got chances last year that I didn't see do anything special. And maybe Ben Charrington is at the, at the point where he's like, I, I need the consistency. And when you're good enough to break through that ceiling, Connor Joe goes. Because I think he would. He'd be the first one, right? Now you've moved into that role. McCutcheon's on the bench because you beat him out. Now you've taken one of those positions. Hey, look, look at the projection on, on Fangrass right now for the, for the Pirates outfield. And I, I find it really interesting when you, when you look at it because you got Brian Reynolds sitting there. Okay, fine. And I still think he's going to be on the team. He's going to play for the team all year long. I'm not buying this that he's getting traded unless unless they're giving the world. I don't think they're getting rid of him. But then you have McCutcheon and Zawinski as, uh, in the two corner outfield positions. At least that's how they're projecting it right now with Joe on the bench. and Because they have Santana in the DH spot. And, and so they must, yeah, they got G-Man Choi at first base. And, and these are just projections. You don't know how the Pirates are going to work everything out. I find it interesting when I look at Andrew McCutcheon's year last year. And I look at Jackson Winskis, and they're the same player. Yeah. What if McCutcheon has a better year than him? And so it'll, it'll, it, it will put you in an interesting position where, yes, you want growth and you want to get a bats for these guys. And I get that argument. I totally get that argument. But you also don't want them to be too comfortable. So I don't know if that's the reason why he's there. I'm trying to find a positive spin because you're, you're getting a little too negative about it, I think. If they wouldn't have gotten Connor Joe in that trade, would you probably have accepted McCutcheon coming a little bit easier? If you, if, if you wouldn't have Bob Nutting's name attached to the move and the fear that the owner just got in the way of what the general manager wanted to do because he wanted to bring McCutcheon back, would you be reacting the same way? I think that I would not be reacting the same way. And has, I mean, take Connor Joe's name out of it because I mean, I I guess you don't have to, but if you didn't add another right-handed bat right before you bought, brought McCutcheon back, it would make, a little bit more sense to me. And as far as the nutting thing goes, I think it kind of shows again that, you know, when things get really, really bad, even though nutting we keep is not a great owner and it is not a great owner as far as spending, but two times in a row that the news that comes out about nutting surrounding at least contracts are positive stories 
about Bob Nutting. Last year, when they were kind of like going with Brian Reynolds and were banking and going almost towards arbitration, he comes in and says, get this figured out. And they got it figured out. McCutcheon, who has a good relationship with him, texts him, and he doesn't really meddle in any of the baseball operations because he doesn't, I don't know if he knows anything about baseball, but he's just like, I know about Andrew. He's a good person. He's a good player. And I at least want to have this discussion. And he goes to Ben Sherrington and said, you know, at least sit down with him. I'm not saying we're going to have to sign him, you know, but at least sit down with him and, and see where this goes if we can find a role for him on the team because of what he means to the Pirates and what he means to Pittsburgh. So, yeah, I think that as far as roster construction goes, if there wasn't another you know, right-handed bat brought in right before that, it probably, I wouldn't be having this much of a conflict within myself because as a fan, this is freaking awesome. Like Andrew McCutcheon, I'm I'm going to I'm going to be there at the home opener. His name is announced, and I'll be screaming just as loud as anybody else. Who's the player that you think it hurts the most, or that you're most concerned won't get an opportunity because Joe and McCutcheon are on the team right now? Like who who does it who does it make you most worried is going to stump their development or it's going to you, you know you want to see this person up and you want to see them playing at the major league level is there somebody that like you get that red light next to their name when you look at the roster construction right now and that's that's why it's bothering you I think I I had my mindset and if it's it could be just a bad thing and people can tell me it's me being silly but I kind of wanted to see. Miguel Anjuar for an entire season. And with him being a right-handed bat that could play left field as well as DH, I kind of saw him, you know, fitting in there. I, I'm Matt Gorski. I'm hoping, you know, that if he comes back and plays well, I look at that and I know that there's like a ton of left-handed out options, but, you know, Cal Mitchell. Cal Mitchell did not perform that great when he came up during, you know, the, his rookie campaign, but he wasn't also, he, he wasn't God awful. So, and every single time he would go back down, he was one of the best hitters on our AAA roster, like consistently for the entire year. So it's like, you know, when you're saying, Chris, like a guy, you know, you're not expecting them to come up and hit right away. People are like, oh, I'm already done with Cal Mitchell. Well, I'm kind of not. And I know that he's a left-handed bat, but I, in some ways I think we have to take that out of our heads at some point in time because you can't platoon every position and you can't automatically decide when you have a guy that's in their quote-unquote second year in the big leagues that they're already a platoon player. Like you, you have to let them kind of figure that out. And especially since it's, you don't see that drastic of platoon splits you know, throughout their minor league career. Some players never hit, you know, if they're left-handed, they ne they've never hit left-handed guys, but that doesn't seem to be an issue for the Pirates players until they get to the major leagues. I mean, some struggle a little bit, but I didn't see that with either uh, Cal Mitchell, they, his everyday player, or Jack Sawinski. What do you think? 
when you when you saw the pool of international signings that the Pirates got. Good, bad, change of philosophy, what you expected. What, what were your what were your feelings on who they've added into the mix? Well, I mean, getting Shim from South Korea, eighteen year old pitcher. Uh, we had mentioned this. Uh, Anthony Murphy had mentioned this from Pirates Prospects when he was on. I mean, he reaches 100 miles per hour. Would have been, you know, 1-1 in, I, I believe it was the, the the KBO's draft until he took his name out of the running. For the Pirates to get that guy, number 10 on uh, the MLB Pipeline International Prospects, I mean, that's just a great signing. For the Pirates to go up against, because I, I know there was at least like two or three other teams involved, to go up against those guys... And if you look at it over the past few years, especially since you know Charrington's come on board, they've got like a, a fairly decent presence uh, over in Asia. And, and the other thing I mentioned to you, Chris, uh, before we got on the show is, and we're talking about presence again, is the presence that the Pirates scouting staff and you know international talent evaluators, the presence that they've had in Venezuela you know, over the past few years. And I shared an article, I uh, retweeted it this morning um, from Justice De Los Santos, had him on the show before. Uh, he is the uh, Pirates beat writer for MLB.com, wrote about the fact that they had the international signings for Venezuela actually happening in Venezuela. Because for the most part, those guys are usually brought, you know, over to Dominican, someplace else, Puerto Rico, wherever it would be, uh, to get those signings done, and and we're actually done in Venezuela, and for the second year in a row, we've got you know the top rated catcher in Venezuela, uh, Axel Plaz guy last year who was 16 years old and and lit the DSL on fire. Uh, Jonathan Rivero is who we get this year for Venezuela, and if you look at it, I mean, there's just a, a, a lot of times it's like. It's all Dominican Republic, and there's there's nothing wrong with it. But they're expanding the horizons to like Venezuela, uh, to Cuba, which is you know not some place that you know the pirates would ever be before. I, I believe we also signed a player from Uganda, which was a huge deal. So I, I I think it was a great international signing, not only because of the the high level of of people that we got um, in Shim. Uh, Raymond Mola from the Dominican Republic was another top 30 guy and outfielder that we got. But just also, I mean, we've talked about this before, Chris, about these pipelines that certain teams create. Uh, the Astros have created a certain pipeline. The Padres, the White Sox, they, they've really, you know, gotten good relationships in certain, I mean, nationalities within the international market. So I just feel, and especially like you go out and you get like a Carlos Santana, somebody to, to you know, to welcome your, your Spanish-speaking, you know, players up to the major leagues. You have O'Neill Cruz there. You have now, you have Rodolfo Castro. I, I feel like, I, I hate to, I mean, I'm not trying to say this, but it, it kind of takes me back to, I, I read a book on the 1971 uh, Pirates where they basically took a stance that it was like, we don't care we're going to get the best players and put them on the field. And I feel like the Pirates are not, you know, limiting themselves in any way. I feel like this has been a very good thing 
uh, since Charrington's come in that he he's put like kind of an emphasis on this. So I, I feel like it was a great international class. I mean, obviously you, you sign that many guys, it's, it's still like, you know, trying to find a needle in a haystack, but I feel that they're also looking in places, especially Venezuela, where other teams don't have that sort of presence. So, I mean, if there's going to be a star coming out of Venezuela, more than likely he's going to be coming up through the pirate system. You know, my, my thing on international prospects, my perspective on it has changed over the last couple of years, just talking with people that, that know more about it than I do. But then also looking at how teams have turned international prospects in the capital. So I've really gone from the idea of go out and get the best guy that's out there and spend all of your pool money on that because that guy's clearly the best guy. So beat everybody for that guy. And I, instead now I say, okay, that's fine if you're sure. Like, if it's pretty can't miss and you're really sure, okay, fine. But it's the teams that have gone out and signed an awful lot of, like, 15 and 16 and 17-year-olds, and they get, like, a lot of them. And then what they do is they turn around and they deal them when they're still raw prospects at 19, right? When they're at that age of the kids that are coming out of, uh, like, high school or first-year college kids that still are a risk in Major League Baseball when they're in the regular draft, but they're, they have something and we're not sure if they're going to grow into their body or get bigger. So there's still nothing but potential. And you see teams that, that deal these types of players to acquire major league talent. And they do it very successfully. Like the trade market's not that great so far this offseason if you look at major league baseball as a whole. And when you look at midseason acquisitions, it seems to be like four or five guys getting dealt in deals just to be able to get that one person. And a lot of them are these international prospects. The the Padres are great at this, okay? Nothing but like 16 and 17-year-olds and just tons of them they can get for a little bit of money, so they spread out that international pool money, and then they just got like a bunch of things, and they could just trade them in a couple of years. When they're still raw, there's still a shine to them. You haven't been able to figure out who they are, and their, their trade capital that can be thrown into a deal to sweeten the pot and get the deal done. And on the other hand, they were really smart because they also acquire players like that. That's what Fernando Tatis was. Like, he was a nothing. In the middle of a trade, we want that kind of capital. So that's like a new kind of, of player that's that's showing up more and more in trades between Major League Baseball teams. Not just the, the AAA guy or the guy that's on the top 100 list. It's that kid that was picked up with international pool money at 16 years old and now is 18 or 19 and is still so raw and so low down in the minor leagues he's not showing up on any list. But teams are still interested in him just as much as they'd be interested in taking a, a really polished 18, 19-year-old in the MLB draft who hadn't even gone through college yet, right? And and acquiring those guys is cheap if you're if you're going and getting not the best guys on that on that international prospect list. I, I it feels to me like the Pirates got one of those higher up guys, but still were able to spread their money around and get those other those other players that will be those types of trade pieces. Yeah, absolutely. I think they they did a really good job and in Charrington's, you know, we know it's a rebuild, but in his building philosophy, and I mean, even even Huntington had a piece of this with like, you know, building up the Dominican Academy. Uh, it's definitely a focus that, you know, we're not going to be able to spend a ton of money. I mean, we always know that we're not going to be able to spend a ton of money. I mean, heck, Chris, we're going to possibly go into arbitration with G-Man Choi when all he, all the man wants is five point four million dollars. I have a theory about that, though. I have I have a theory about that, and it's that he comes from the the Rays organization, right? 
And and the Rays, the Rays are vicious when it comes to the guys that they have control over. Like the, that's the team that took uh, uh, was it Blake Snell, the pitcher, and 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 kept giving him a ten percent reduction on his salary because the rules say you can do that before he even gets to arbitration. They would it would just reduce his salary on him constantly, even though he was out there pitching like crazy already in the major leagues and was like an all star. Like they're they're that kind of team. They fight in arbitration. They really they really take advantage of anything they can take advantage of with young players that they have control over. And so a guy like Choi being the only guy on the Pirates that was like, yeah, we're not settling yet. I want I want five million or five whatever that he wants, even though the Pirates are in the four range. That I think that that might be. I mean, that's just me kind of guessing, but I, I found it interesting. It was the former Rays player that was ready to fight a little bit about what he thought he was worth. Yeah, and for the most part, Chris, I mean, got Mitch Keller for under 2.5, got JT for a little bit over 2.25. You know, Robert Stevenson and, and Dwayne Underwood Jr. are still there, but they weren't super expensive. I mean, Robert Stevenson, 1.75, Dwayne Underwood, just over 1 million. But avoiding that kind of stuff with Mitch Keller and JT Brubaker, I mean, that's kind of a little bit more important. I not that you want to go to arbitration with anybody, but it is kind of weird that they would be even if this made it to arbitration. Like, say they can't agree by the time the arbitration hearing comes along, it's going to be them arguing with a player who they didn't even really get to see play that much last year. I mean, I'm pretty sure they might know something about him, but it's not the same as going to arbitration with a guy who you've brought up through your system and has been with your team for the past three years, they're going to arbitration with a guy that they just kind of shook hands with a couple right. months ago. And, th- and that's the thing about arbitration is that y- you basically go in and say that your own player sucks. And then your player is like, no, I don't. I'm better than what you're you're offering me. And then an arbitrator picks a number. I mean, it's, it's, it's not the nicest thing. I think that's why a lot of players try to avoid it and why a lot of teams try to avoid it because the one time you're telling somebody under your own roof, we don't think you're as good as you think you are, and, you, and you're bringing up numbers and everything like that. But but I also get why a guy who is about to turn 32 is trying to get all he can because he's, he's, not, he's not a spring chicken, G-Man Joy, and he still has to deal with one more year of arbitration before he becomes a free agent. So I, I get it. Like, I mean, it made sense to me that he's going to challenge it. It'll be, I, I, look, it's not my money. It's Bob Nutting's. So go go, G-Man. I'm rooting for you, okay? Get, get all you can, right? Get all the money you can, G-Man Joy. <laughs> go get some. Go shake get those some. Pe- shake those pennies loose. Now I see the changes in this town. They change, they say one thing, but then the next day.